We are in our For the Life of the World series. Um, If you haven't been with us, this is where we talk about Easter and the Easter season. Easter is in a couple weeks. We hope to see you at our myriad events that weekend. You'll hear a little bit more about that from Leanna later, but that is on the weekend of the 21st. We've got like six things going on, including Easter in Central Park. It's going to be a great time. But um, that's just part of us celebrating uh, this For the Life of the World series. Um, Right now, um, last week, uh, Todd kicked us off on this series, and we're continuing today. Before we continue, I just want to commend Noah on his kids' feature, Double Duty. If only all of us could learn from him, comforting his cousin and giving the, the kids' feature at the same time. That's, that's inspirational. So shout out to Noah. Um, when was the last time that your expectations were upended? The last time the reality you had constructed about a situation or a person or an event was reversed. For me, this, uh, the most recent example I could think of happened just a few days ago. Uh, I went to go see the play King Lear on Broadway. Did we heard about this? Uh, if you're not aware, um, this is a Shakespearean play um, being staged on Broadway right now. And just like pretty much every Shakespearean play, it's been done a million times. Um, and if you're not familiar with Shakespeare, the language is particular. It's not really the way that we talk, but if you understand it or, or learn about it, you can enjoy it and, and have a good time. I like dramas, I like plays, I even like Shakespeare, but one of the things about Shakespeare is that even if you take some things out of the plays, they end up being very long. And with the kind of language and, and, and stuff they're talking about, um, you can really easily feel that length. So my, my friend had some free tickets to King Lear on Broadway, and I was excited to use these tickets, the best seats I'll ever have at a Broadway play. Um, but I was mostly excited because I would get to feel more important than other people that wouldn't have gone to a Shakespeare play not because I was actually looking forward to enjoying a a three-and-a-half-hour Shakespeare play. Um, But when I got there, it was fantastic, and I had a great time, and and it was done amazingly, and I didn't even feel those three-and-a-half hours. Um, And many Shakespeare plays that I've been in or seen, I've felt that time. So this really upended and, and, and flipped on its head my expectations of what was going to happen. If we don't, we may not realize it, but this kind of thing uh, happens to us all the time. Think about movies you like. There's probably some expectation that the writer or director is setting you up to have, and then they divert from it, and that's what makes the story memorable or interesting, right? It could be blatant, like a big plot twist uh, at the end, or, or it could be something more subtle, like a character growing in some way that you wouldn't have expected them to. Another way that our expectations are often um, uh, changed or or upended is, I know a lot of you have experienced this because you're all on dating apps. You know, you swipe right on someone and you see their pictures look nice, and then when you meet them in person, they're not really what you were expecting when you swiped right. Um, So this is happening to us all the time. Our expectations are being uh, changed. 
If, you, uh, if we've ever talked, you've probably heard me nerd out about improv. Improv comedy is probably my favorite thing. And the basis, the basic idea of improv is you have people on a stage, actors acting out, and they don't have any scripts, they don't have any costumes, props, characters, they're making up everything on the spot. And so the way you do this, the way you make a scene good, is you have two people come and they have to set up some expectations. They have to tell you through what they say or what they do, what the reality is, because other, you can't tell from the stage or what they're dressed as or anything. They have to show you what the reality is. So if there's two people on stage and one of them says to the other, oh, honey, I can't believe that you crashed the car last night. Well, now you know that this is a couple and one of them just crashed their car. But improv isn't funny or interesting because people make up a situation, it becomes funny or interesting when that expectation, something happens that you weren't expecting, when that expectation is upended. So if we have that situation and the person's like, honey, I can't believe you crashed the car last night, and they're like, yeah, um, I can't believe it either, uh, I was just coming back from my affair with your sister. Like, oh, oh, I wasn't expecting that to be the response. <laughs> To, and, and you as the audience aren't expecting that to be the response when that reality is set up. Throughout our lives, whether we notice it or not, we're constantly creating expectations, and a lot of times those are not being met the way that we expect. Now sometimes this is funny, sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's powerful, sometimes it's uncomfortable, sometimes it points out our biases and projections and discriminations that we may not be fully aware of. Going back to this King Lear example, there, this is a famous play about a really crazy king who goes mad and, and it's often played by really powerful, large, well-renowned men. And in this play, that role was played by a small, diminutive, old woman. And so I knew that going in, and I was like, eh, I don't know about this, but it ended up being fantastic. My expectations revealed my biases or my discrimination on what this actress was capable of, and she ended up upending it. And her not meeting my expectations, not only was it meaningful and made for a great show, but it also made me uncomfortable with some of the realities of what I may think about other people sometimes. These expectations can be positive, negative, anywhere in between. But these expectations are usually helpful. We have them for a reason. They're because of our experience, what we've learned, what life has taught us. If you're walking and you, it's going well, that's because you're expecting your knee to work and you're expecting the floor to not cave in and your shoes to be tied. When you trip, it's because your expectations were not met. Your leg broke all of a sudden, or you, someone tied your shoelaces together, or there was a crack in the sidewalk. These expectations, there's a reason that we have them, and it's understandable to have them. But sometimes those expectations are turned on their head. Today, the passage that we read and the person that we're reading about it's a particularly acute example of expectations being upended. Jesus destroys and exceeds 
our expectations. Before we even get to this part of John that we're reading today, and just going up to it, you can already see the ways that Jesus is rejecting the expectations placed upon him or that, or that the reality uh, that everyone else is expecting. Just last week when Todd uh, spoke on this passage, just in passing we mentioned Lazarus. What could be more of an upending of an expectation than raising someone from the dead? We talked a little bit more in depth about Mary and about her anointing Jesus' feet with oil and how everyone in the room was expecting Jesus to be upset by this or expecting uh, everyone was, thought this was inappropriate. But in fact, Jesus says, no, this was the best thing she could have done. And no, you're selfish for wanting her to do something different. And, and, and this is a beautiful thing she's done. So this is not just something confined to the passage we're dealing with today. This is the way Jesus is. Now we get to what we're focusing on in John 12, verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. Now this may not be particularly uh, noticeable or meaningful to us, but this is referring to a Jewish uh, festival. And in Jewish religious life at the time, someone that was not of the Jewish ethnic and or religious group would not have been welcome to participate or attend this festival or to worship with them. Now this wasn't because the Jewish people were especially you know, excluding people, um, but it also, it, also wasn't, it also wasn't because the people that weren't Jewish were saying, you know, keep to yourself. It was both. The Jews had a very particular identity, the chosen people of God that gave them these, these traditions and these festivals and these ways of worship, and the Gentiles were simply not a part of that. So the fact that we see some Greeks coming up to worship at this festival and try to engage Jesus is already defying the expectations. Because, first of all, why would Greeks even really be interested in being a part of this, right? And second, they would normally, no rabbi or, or religious teacher or Jewish leader would have been excited about some Gentiles coming up to engage them, let alone having a conversation with them or trying to teach them something. So we're, we're starting off with things being different. Verse 21. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. I, I love that Philip has to go get help before he, has, before he tells Jesus. Some Gentiles come up to him. He's like, I'm not sure what to do with them. Uh, Andrew, what do you think? He's like, I don't know. Let's just go together to Jesus. Then we can back each other up. So we get to verse 22, or verse 23, sorry. Jesus answered them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does it mean for the Son of Man to be glorified? The Son of Man is a term that Jesus has used to describe himself throughout the Gospels, so it's, it's not particularly surprising to see it in this place, him referring to himself that way. But what does this glorification mean? What does to be glorified mean? When we think of glorification, we think of lifting something or someone up. We, it's how we recognize that person or that thing's worth, right? It's, we're praising that person for the great things they've done or the great person they are, receiving the good consequences of the rewards that they are due. 
You may not be aware, but Game of Thrones is starting back up next week. If you don't watch it, don't start. It's not worth it. It's not good for you. Don't do it. If you are watching it, guys, it's finally going to end. We're going to figure out what happens. Somebody is going to win the Game of Thrones, hopefully at least, and someone is going to be glorified. When we think of glorification, this is what we think of. The coronation that the victor deserves and has earned because of their great abilities, right? This is either the, the queen that conquered everyone with her dragons or the ice zombies that killed everybody else or however many other people there are competing for this throne. But the glorification that we normally think of as glorification is something that you've earned, that you have conquered for, that you are victorious over, and now you get to sit in the throne. That is being lifted up. That is glorification. But what does Jesus mean? Is that what he's talking about when he says this? Verse 24, very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is the analogy or the metaphor that Jesus uses to describe what glorification that he is going to be experiencing looks like. Now, he doesn't give a, a simple, concise, um, logical answer. Like usual, he tells a story or a parable or a metaphor or an, or an analogy, and he does it here again. Glory for him comes through death. Now, this is not an unusual idea. This isn't particularly remarkable. A lot of the legends that we have or the historical figures that we look up to died for the cause that they believed in, right? And this is what brought them glory. Whether that's the, the end of the war story, the person charging off into battle, even though they know they're going to die, standing up one last time for their country or their faith or whatever, or it's someone who's being persecuted um, for what they believe in or who they are, and they end up being a martyr for their cause. We're not being... Being killed and receiving glory is not necessarily an unusual idea. But dying like a grain of wheat dies, wheat does not die a glorious, remembered death. Jesus' glory will not come in the manner of his death, but because of the fruit his death will produce. Verse 25. Those who love their life lose it. Those who hate their life in this world will keep it. I don't know of anyone who expects to go through life hating it. And if they do, it's not going to be good for them or anyone around them. Here Jesus is saying, if you, if you want to keep your life or gain your life, you need to hate it. If you love it, you will lose it. This hyperbole he's using and this way of describing how you go through life is once again upending the expectation of what it's supposed to be. He's saying that the life that you should long for that is not now, you should long for so deeply that what you have now looks like hatred in comparison. Wow. That's not an expectation that I've ever had for how I want to live my life. Verse 26. 
Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Jesus is talking about the time has come for him to die an inglorious death, like the death of a grain of wheat. And if you want to serve me, that's what you need to follow me into. That's not an expectation of what a leader worth following would give you as, the, as what you should do to follow them. In order to, to serve and follow Jesus, I must follow him into inglorious glory. Verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. This teacher that they've come to learn from, Jews and Greeks alike, is having a conversation with thunder, kind of crazy, or an angel, crazier. So the reaction is, well, he must really be troubled about this hour that is to come. He is described, it's time for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. That glory is in a, in a mundane death. And I, and I should be troubled about that. God, what should I do? And everybody is looking at him. Jesus answers in verse 30. This voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Even in this conversation and the observance of it, he is changing the reality of what it means. I don't, I don't need God's assurance. I know what I have to do. This is to help you out, to let you know that I'm connected to the Father. And here in verse 31 is where we get to the high point of this passage. Verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is the crux of the expectations that Jesus will upend. Here is the most distilled instance of the reality that he will reverse. Now is the judgment of this world. His death, his inglorious death of a criminal, it would seem like a judgment on him. But he's saying it is a judgment on the world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out, Jesus says. In Jesus' death, the ruler of this world should succeed. He's killed him. But instead, that death will drive this ruler out. 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. When we hear this idea lifted up, we think of a figurative, glorious lifting up, right? It's a giving of just due, of acknowledgement, of honor. And Jesus is talking about his literal lifting up. When he is lifted up on a cross, when that happens, people should be reviled. They should be ashamed for him. They should pity him. 
he should be forgotten. His claims to be the Messiah and the Son of God should be proven wrong. People should be repelled by his being lifted up in this way. Instead, he says, all people will be drawn to him. Now, in 2019, when we think of a cross, it has a lot of connotations that these original hearers and readers would not have had. For us, a cross, um, we see it on necklaces, we see it in houses of worship, we see it in gold. It means so many things, especially as a Christian community, the cross has a lot of meaning for us, and positive meaning. For them, this is much closer to a lynching rope being hung over a tree. Not a symbol that you would want to promote and glorify. This is the way that Jesus is going to be lifted up. Verse 33. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was going to die. A crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Messiah remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus is changing the expectation of what a Messiah should even be. These people had learned, had memorized the passages of Scripture, and it sat at the feet of their teachers learning about this Messiah that was going to come, that was going to be with them forever after he conquered and saved them from the oppression and the marginalization that they were living under. He's reversing that reality. He's saying, I, I will be with you forever, but not in the physical conquering way that you think of. But according to them, how can Jesus be the Messiah if he's going to die? Jesus is saying that he is the Messiah because he's going to die. And the way that he is going to die. And he will be with them forever. If they follow him in the life they will gain, if they hate the life they lived the way they had expected to live it not in the conquering, physical, messianic way they had expected. Verse 35, he continues. Jesus said to them, The light is with you for a little longer. Walk while you have the light, so that the darkness may not overtake you. If you walk in the darkness, you do not know where you are going. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become children of light. We are his children of light. We are parts of that group of all people being drawn to him. These expectations that Jesus shattered were not just the expectations of the people witnessing him in his final days on earth. He is still shattering expectations today. It's because he is this way that we're all here. It's because of the way that Jesus shatters expectations that we even know who each other are. There's no other reason for a group of people from this many parts of the world, this many socioeconomic backgrounds, this many languages, this many ages, for us all to be together on a regular basis and know one another. That 
shattering of expectations that Jesus has done in the past and has done in our lives keeps us here and together. But the reality is, no matter how much we know that, we live in darkness. It doesn't take much to acknowledge the darkness around us in the world on a grand world stage, but also that we've experienced in our own personal lives or in our families, whether that's sickness or death or betrayal. There's so many ways that we experience the darkness Jesus is warning about here. We have no reason to be considered in the light. We haven't done anything to achieve that light, to make that light shine, or to earn that light. What can we do to keep that darkness at bay? Our expectation is that we must do better. We must be better. We must know more. We must be more worthy of glory. We must do more to shine the light. Our reality is darkness, but Jesus reverses that. He calls us children of light anyways because of what he has done, not because of what we could ever do. Quick commercial break. Service today is brought to you by Gradients, our Friday night program, first Friday of every month. We had one last night, and if you have never been to Gradient, we spent a good uh, portion of the time in discussion with one another. And since we're in this For the Life of the World series here on Saturday morning and celebrating Easter with the larger, larger uh, Christian population throughout the world, we thought, hey, now is a good time for us to talk about this at Gradient. And so um, as part of our discussion, we read through the story of Jesus' final days on earth, his trial before Pilate, uh, his last supper with his disciples, his crucifixion, and ultimately his resurrection. In hearing people's reactions to the story, we, we asked them what they found meaningful or that they resonated with in this story. Everything that I personally heard, I, I wasn't able to hear everyone's reactions, but everything that I heard that people uh, resonated with from that story was about how Jesus rejected reality, how he upended expectations. He rejected the hierarchical tradition that required his followers to wash his feet. He rejected the opportunity to exclude his betrayer from his blessing. He rejected the violence and anger his disciple exhibited at Jesus' arrest. He rejected the opportunity to fight for himself before Pilate as he was unjustly accused by the people who should be glorifying him. He rejected the differentiation between himself and a common thief as they hung together on the cross and he welcomed him into paradise. He rejected his own power to call down angels to help him in his time of pain while people were mocking him, telling him to do just that. He rejected death itself when he rose again. He rejected the patriarchal importance of men when he first appeared to his female followers. In his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus rejected all of these realities, all so that he could accept us, all so he could call us children of light. We serve a different type of God. 
We serve a God who sees glory in service, who gives love when he's betrayed, who calls for peace when the sword is drawn, even drawn in his defense, who submits rather than controls, who is lifted up in disgust, not in adoration, who draws all people, not just the worthy, to himself, who finds life in death, who gains victory through defeat, and who sees light in the darkness. This Jesus did everything for the life of the world. In this season, as we remember what he's done, let us dwell in light, not trying to live up to our expectations of what we should be, but embracing the new reality of who he already says we are in him, his children of light. Amen.